sooner or later, God will bring you into a crisis, into a trial. And in that moment, you will have to wrestle with where and in whom you will place your trust. You will have to wrestle with questions like, can God really be trusted right now in this moment? Can I really give this situation to Jesus? Will he really be true to his promises? That's the Christian life. That's discipleship. It's learning anew to trust Jesus. And when has that ever gone bad for you? When has trusting Jesus ever turned out bad for you? Never. Right? Because he's faithful. And it's a really great combination when you think about it. Our weakness and our foolishness and our stupidity meets his power and his wisdom. What could go wrong with that? What could go wrong when our weakness and our foolishness meets his power and his wisdom? Nothing. See, there is no downside to trusting Jesus. There's no hangover with trusting Jesus. There's no fine print that you regret not reading later. There's no downside to trusting Jesus and taking him at his word, even when things get really dark, especially when things get really dark. And so our big idea today is chock full of gospel hope. You can trust God further than you can see him. That's what we'll see in God's word today. So turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. We're continuing our series uh, that I've titled Wholehearted. Uh, I stole that phrase, you can trust God further than you can see him from Matthew Henry in his commentary where he said this, the better God is known, the more he is trusted. Those who know him to be a God of infinite wisdom will trust him further than they can see him. Those who know him to be a God of almighty power will trust him when creature confidences fail and they have nothing else to trust to. And those who know him to be a God of infinite grace and goodness will trust him though he slay them. Those who know him to be a God of inviolable truth and faithfulness will rejoice in his word of promise and rest upon that, though the performance be deferred and immediate providences seem to contradict it. Those who know him to be the father of spirits and an everlasting father will trust him with their souls as their main care and trust in him at all times, even to the end. Sooner or later, God will lead you into a trial, into a crisis. God will allow some kind of suffering in your life. And in that moment and in those moments, you, Christian, can trust God further than you can see him. I was reminded of that this morning when I woke up and there was a note, uh, a stack of notes written by Piper, our seven-year-old, on the counter, and I read through them, and on one of the sheets, this is what it said. It said, God is woldful. 
I think she means wonderful. She's seven. God is woldful. God is wonderful. God is strong. I think she means strong. God is strong. He protects us. He loves us. We love him so much. We cans trust him. I love him. Let me tip you off early. This is a great response to 1 Kings 17 today. For you and I to leave here saying, number one, God is wonderful. Number two, God is strong. Number three, he protects us. And number four, we can trust him. She was asking me yesterday as she was writing this, she said, how do you spell pretext? And I thought, what seven-year-old asks how to spell pretext? So I said, P-R-E-T-E-X-T, pretext. And she said, no, not pretext, pretext. And I was like, pretext? She's like, you know, like God pretexts us. And I said, oh, okay. No, protect. She said, no, not protect, pretext. (laughs) Then I realized that her father grew up in Oklahoma, and this is just probably some redneck carryover. Hey, Jesus protects us. He protects us. You can leave here today saying Jesus protects us, and God is woldful, and God is strong. That's an appropriate response today. When creature comforts fail, when you have nothing else to trust to, even when God slays you, you can trust him. And you can trust him even when he tells you to live in a van down by the river and ravens will bring you barbecue sandwiches. 1 Kings chapter 17, look at verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to King Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now recall what we saw several weeks ago back in chapter 16. King Ahab, king of Israel, was worse than any king that came before him. He led the nation of Israel into this very grotesque immorality. They worshipped the Lord through sacred prostitution. They had prostitutes set up at these shrines where they would worship. They would worship the god Baal and the god Ashtoreth, and they would worship those two gods alongside Yahweh. And so we pick up here in chapter 17 with the prophet Elijah coming out of nowhere. And he comes to see King Ahab and he delivers a message to him. There's not going to be any rain until I say so. But why does Elijah tell Ahab that there will be no rain? I think there are two reasons. Number one, rain, no rain would prove that the Canaanite god Baal that they were worshiping, no rain would prove that Baal was a fraud. This would cripple Ahab's theology. Baal was believed by the Canaanites to be the god of thunder and rain. And so a drought brought on by Yahweh, the god of the Israelites, the sovereign Lord, a drought would expose the false theology of Baal. But the withholding of rain was not just to discredit Baal and publicly humiliate him. There's another reason for bringing on the drought. Number two, 
no rain was evidence of God's judgment on his people. The answer can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 11. It says, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So Ahab and the nation of Israel, except for a small remnant, which we'll we'll find out about later, but overall Ahab and the nation of Israel have disregarded the very clear word of God. They've broken the first commandment. I mean, they don't get too far into the Ten Commandments, and they've already messed up. In the covenant curse sections of the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, the Lord makes it very clear that obedience brings blessing, not perfection, but obedience brings blessing, and disobedience brings curses. And so the Lord is withholding the rain in order to get his people's attention. But are we surprised that Yahweh is bringing covenant curses upon the nation of Israel? Are we surprised by that, that God would do this? We we shouldn't be. Our God is faithful. Amen? Our God is faithful. Yes, our God is faithful to discipline his people when they turn from his word in willful disobedience. And that truth should startle us. It should sober us. Are we comfortable with a God who is faithful to discipline his people? Does this truth make you want to sing the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Does this truth make you want to sing your love never fails? It ought to. Just as much as he is faithful to forgive our sins, he is faithful to discipline his children as well. Because he loves us. Because... His love never fails. God loves us, therefore, He will discipline us. And we can trust that about Him. We can trust Him even when it hurts. You can trust God further than you can see Him. Even when He disciplines you and you can't see the end in sight, you can trust Him. And sometimes our egos take a blow when God confronts us and disciplines us, right? We like to think we're all that and above some sins, and then we find ourselves caught red-handed, and we have to do the walk of shame back to Jesus. And so sometimes our egos take a blow when God confronts us and disciplines us. Sometimes our egos get the living daylights beat out of them, and it hurts, and it's embarrassing. Embarrassing when we realize just how bad we are. It's embarrassing when we realize what's deep down inside all of our hearts. But do we want to keep living that way? Do we want to stay that way? God loves us enough to crush our ego so that we find our identity and value and worth in him and not in us and our supposed righteousness and our supposed goodness. Understand this, Grace. Sometimes God comes to discipline you just so that he can knock that swagger out of your step. Let me say that again. 
Sometimes God comes to discipline you just so that he can knock that swagger out of your step. And we need that sometimes because we, like King Ahab in this passage, like to think that we can do life without God. That swagger needs to get knocked out of us. And God does that by disciplining us because he loves us. Even when we are disciplined by the Lord, we need to be reminded that you can trust God further than you can see him. When just this week, as I faced some unknowns in my life, I was comforted by question 11 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which says this, question 11, what are God's works of providence? Answer, God's works of providences are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. This week, I needed to be reminded of God's providence, that he is preserving and governing all of his creatures and all of their actions by his most holy, wise, and powerful providence. Jesus is preserving and governing every creature in this world. And Elijah was about to find out that Yahweh was governing the creatures that would be serving him barbecue for breakfast and dinner. Look at verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kerith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And so Elijah delivers this message to King Ahab and then he leaves. But why does the Lord send Elijah away? Is it because eventually, as we'll see in chapter 18, that Ahab and Jezebel are after Elijah and there's a bounty on his head? Is that why Elijah leaves? I mean, that's usually the explanation that's given here for Elijah's departure. That's not it, though. Elijah does not leave Ahab because he's afraid. People say that, but that's not what's happening here at all. Elijah is not afraid in this chapter. Elijah is not afraid in the next few chapters. He's not afraid at all. That's not why he leaves. I think there's another reason, a more sobering reason for believers anywhere. The answer lies in Elijah's identity. Who is Elijah? He's a prophet. He's a mouthpiece for the Lord. He is the Lord's voice to his people. He represents the word of God. And the Lord sends his prophet, the Lord sends his word away from his people. The willful disobedience of God's people to God's word has brought about the removal of God's word. Throughout the Old Testament, the removal of God's word or the silence of God's word or the silence of the prophets is seen as a sign of judgment. And perhaps the most frightening of them all is found in Amos chapter 8. 
where it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. I mean, could this be? Would the Lord really remove his word from his people? Yes, he would. And he does. But some might say that this couldn't happen in our day because we have God's word, right? We have so many study Bibles. What are you interested in? There's probably a study Bible for that. Underwater basket weaving, there's probably an underwater basket weaving study Bible that you can buy. We have all kinds of study Bibles. How could we ever have a famine of the word? We have great teachers on the radio, TV, there's a handful of them on TV, not many. Podcasts, commentaries, books, apps on our phone, and yet in spite of all these resources, there could still be a famine of the word. How might that happen today? How might the word of God leave us? Well, it's like we saw a few weeks ago. A seminary has a chapel service where they confess their sins to plants. That's how you get a famine of the word. I spoke with a retired pastor from another denomination last week, and he said that he was once part of a denomination that did not believe that the Bible was the authoritative word of God for all people. All the pastors had to affirm to be ordained was to believe that God's word was true for them. It didn't have to be true for the church where they were serving. It just had to be true for them individually, not true for everyone. And this was a denomination that affirms the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. That's how there's a famine of the word, even when you have the word of God in your possession. Robert Godfrey says, churches that depart from the word will soon find that God has departed from them. You can have the word of God, and yet it can be absent. What a scary place to be for an individual believer or for a church experiencing a famine of the word of God and then not even being aware of it. And it could happen to us if we neglect and willfully disdain and disobey God's word. You can hear sermons preached here every week. You can sit in Sunday school classes. You can go to Bible studies and yet the word of God has withdrawn. Ahab and company have refused the word of the Lord. And so there's a famine. There's no rain, and there's no word of God. And so the word leaves. Elijah leaves. But how does Elijah respond to God's word? The text says in verse 5, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Elijah is obedient. Now let's get our bearings here. What the Lord asks Elijah to do here is crazy. Go hide by the brook. Go live in a van down by the river. Drink from it. And by the way, I'll send ravens and they'll bring you barbecue sandwiches every day. It's crazy. The Lord does indeed work in mysterious ways. Ravens? 
Ravens were considered unclean according to Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Israelites weren't allowed to eat ravens. But the Lord isn't asking Elijah to eat ravens. The ravens will simply bring him the food every day. And what do you do when ravens bring you food every day? You make sure you cook it really good. That's what you do. And if you thought the Lord couldn't get crazier in his instructions to Elijah, wait till you see what he says to Elijah next. Look at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Yahweh my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to Yahweh, O Yahweh my God, let this child's life come into him again. And Yahweh listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of Yahweh in your mouth is truth. So if you thought ravens carrying fast food was wild, get a load of this. Now the Lord directs Elijah to go to a Gentile widow in Zarephath. It's crazy for three reasons. Number one, she's a widow. Widows were considered goners in the ancient Near East. Ruth is a goner in the book of Ruth. Their husbands are gone. They have very little, no education, no skills, and yet... A dirt poor widow is to provide for Elijah. Number two, she's a pagan. She's a Gentile. She doesn't believe in Yahweh. Yet, and number three, she lives in Zarephath. Zarephath was located between Tyre and Sidon, very close to Jezebel's dad's house, Ethbaal, we saw back in chapter 16, the Baal worshiper. I mean, isn't God amazing? Isn't God, isn't Jesus wild? Isn't Jesus crazy? I mean, this is vintage Yahweh here. Feed a man with ravens, and when the brook dries up, send him to a poor pagan widow who lives in Baalville. 
doesn't this text make you want to shout? Doesn't this text make you want to dance? Yahweh uses creative and wild and imaginative ways to meet the needs of his people. We saw this in seminary all the time. Some, we'd get some refund in the mail. We'd need $100 to pay a school bill or something. We'd get a refund in the mail. Sometimes we'd open the door of our house and there would be groceries outside. Bags of groceries. One time we opened the door and there was Kentucky Fried Chicken sitting in a bag. And it was still warm. It was like a raven brought it to us. We didn't know where it came from. We ate it. You're a poor seminary student. You pray and you eat. Jesus uses crazy and creative and wild and imaginative ways to meet the needs of his people. I love that about Jesus. You may not know what's down the road in your future, but you can know that Jesus can and does answer in wild, crazy, and exciting ways. It kind of makes you anticipate. What's the Lord going to do in this situation? I should be stressed out about it, but instead, I'm kind of excited. What's God going to do in this situation? I can't wait and see. Pass the popcorn. This is going to be good. His answers to our prayers, his meeting our needs, his powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions is not boring at all. He meets our needs and he often does it in surprising ways, just like with this widow. And just like Elijah said, she never ran out of food. And verse 16 gives us the reason. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. God's word proved true. He kept his promise. He kept his word. God keeps covenant. God keeps his promises. The old widow was learning a truth that the original audience of 1 Kings, who were in exile that they were learning. And it's a lesson that we need to relearn too. It's a lesson that you probably need to relearn this morning. You can trust God further than you can see him. What unknown awaits you? What's, what's coming down somewhere on the calendar and you know something's happening, there's some event, some unresolved issue, whatever it is, some need of yours. You can trust God further than you can see him. You don't know what's coming in December. Maybe you're stressed about what's coming in December. You can trust God further than you can see him. The widow couldn't see into the future. All she had was Elijah's word that her food would last. She was learning a core truth of discipleship that goes all the way back to when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. God's people can trust him even when they can't see him. You can trust God right now, even though you can't see him. Even though you're scratching your head and you're wondering, why is he doing what he's doing? You can trust him. Scratch your head. Wonder. But wonder with excitement and anticipation. Gosh, I wonder what God's going to do here. It's going to be really cool and crazy. I wonder what he's going to do. God's people can trust him even when they can't see him. That's what the widow was learning here. And the widow will have to learn this truth when her little boy dies. But before she learns this truth, 
She'll accuse Elijah of causing his death and bringing tragedy on her house. But then Elijah takes the boy upstairs, prays for him, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, raises her son up from the dead. And then she trusts in Yahweh, as verse 24 says. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. You can trust God with whatever it is that's keeping you up at night. You can trust God about whatever it is that's taken away your appetite. It's causing you to bite your nails and toss in bed. You can trust God. Understand that all of these little miracles here And the miracles that we experience in our life, all of these miracles, the ravens that carry barbecue sandwiches to Elijah, the never-ending oil and flour, the dead boy raised to life, all of these are just many demonstrations of where the future is headed. They are demonstrations of the incoming kingdom of God even right now. So that everything that we go through in this life, every time that we experience deliverance, Every time that we see victory from some trouble, every time God answers our prayers in some crazy, out-of-this-world way, every time we experience a miracle, these are just pictures, they're little snapshots of where things are headed, that Jesus is going to make all things new, that he's going to make all the sad things come untrue. So that means that we can trust Jesus right now in this moment all the way to the end of our lives, even though we can't see that far into the future, even though we don't have a picture of what our future holds, even though we don't know what is going to happen to us next week. We don't know what's going to happen to us later this afternoon. You might get a phone call that absolutely devastates you, and in that moment, while your heart is breaking, you can trust Jesus And so what is our part? What do we do? You can strip it down to two very simple words. Trust Jesus. That's it. That's our part. Trust Jesus. That's simple. Trust Jesus, yes. But if you've been a Christian for very long, then you know that trusting Jesus is not easy. It doesn't come natural to us, does it? It isn't easy for us because of the unknown. Because we don't know what the future holds. R.C. Sproul was fond of saying, Believing in God is easy, but believing God is much harder. It's easy to believe in God. I believe in God. I believe there's a God there. But believing God, believing His Word, in spite of how we feel, if we're honest, that's hard. And so God is saying to us today, in the middle of all of our uncertainties, you won't always understand me, you won't always get what I'm doing or know what I'm up to, but you can always trust me. I'm trustworthy, always. And if I just so happen to to surprise you with some impossible situation that seems hopeless, like this pagan widow in 1 Kings 17, then I will also surprise you with the joy that I will bring out of that impossible situation. Oh, and by the way, in case you forgot, I specialize in impossible situations. 
So why don't you just cast your cares on me? I got this, okay? I was reminded of this yesterday. I was doing some dishes, listening to the Bible on audio. In Genesis 18, verse 14, just kind of stopped me in my tracks. Where it says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You know what the context of that is? When that's said? It's given to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah, you're 90 years old. A year from now, you're going to give birth. Have you ever seen a 90-year-old pregnant woman? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Some of you 90-year-old women are like, oh, no. (laughs) Well, nothing's hard for the Lord. That's the context. Is that hard for Abraham, who was almost 100 years old? And his wife, who's 90, to get pregnant? Hard on our end. It's not with the Lord. Feed ravens, bring you barbecue for breakfast and dinner? Not hard for Jesus. Oil and flour that never seem to run out? Every time you open the lid and look in there, there's one more scoop? Not hard for Jesus. Bring a little boy back from death? Not hard for Jesus. So where in your life have you been thinking, this is too hard for Jesus. This is impossible. Jesus can do lots of stuff, but he can't do blank. Where in your life do you need to fill in the blank? Is blank too hard for the Lord? What do you need to put in those blanks? There may be several. Just pile them all in there. Is blank too hard for the Lord in your life? The answer is no. Where do you need to trust Jesus today? That's just, that's the Christian life right there. That's discipleship, learning anew to trust Jesus. And when has that ever gone bad? When has trusting Jesus ever turned out bad for you? Never, because he's faithful. So it's a really great combination when you think about it, when we bring our weakness and we bring our foolishness and it meets his power and his wisdom. What could go wrong? What could go wrong when we bring our weakness and we bring our foolishness and we bring our stupidity and we let it meet Jesus and his power and his wisdom? Nothing can go wrong. There is no downside to trusting Jesus whatsoever. Ray Ortland said, If no one ever thinks we're crazy for the way we stick our necks out in trusting the promises of God, are we really living by faith? If no one ever thinks we're crazy for the way we stick our necks out, trusting the promises of God, are we really living by faith? If no one scratches their head when they hear about how much peace we have when troubles come our way, if no one scratches their head when they hear about how calm we are in the face of hardship and suffering, if no one scratches their head when they hear about how we are simply trusting Jesus when all of our creature comforts have failed Are we really living by faith? And what better place to trust God and stick our necks out in trusting his promises than when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? His promises than when we celebrate here at the Lord's Supper. It's here that we feed on Christ by what? We feed on Christ by faith, by trust. All that God is for us in his son, we find when we come to this table, he is our wisdom, he is our righteousness, he is our sanctification, he is our redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30. 
We come to this table and we're sticking our necks out in faith, trusting in what Jesus has done for us regardless of how we feel. We're sticking our necks out and trusting that he lived a perfect life for us, for sinners like us who are really bad. We're sticking our necks out and trusting that he died a brutal, bloody death on a cross for our sins that have offended a holy God. And he took the blame. We're believing that when we come to this table. We're sticking our necks out and trusting that God raised him from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're sticking our necks out and trusting that his love never fails, even if we do, even when we do. And we do fail all the time, right? So we come to this table today. And as we come, stick your neck out and trust the promises of God. Trust that the sins that you can't seem to forget, Jesus cannot remember. Trust that he is your wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Trust that he is preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And trust that when your weakness and foolishness meets his power and wisdom, then nothing can go wrong. appropriate response to God's word to us today is to leave here and saying, number one, God is wonderful. Number two, God is strong. Number three, he protects us. And number four, we can trust him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this table this morning, we are reminded of our many sins, how we have failed in so many ways. But all of that is overshadowed by the wonderful truth of what your son has done for people like us. And so we confess our sins. Lord, as we've been praying lately, take us deeper into repentance. Meet us at those deeper and darker places in our hearts and may we confess our sin and and give it up to you and start cleaning us out. Take a scalpel to us and dig out the crud. Lord, we turn from that and we want to turn to your son and find our joy in him. So by the power of the spirit, would you cause us to forsake our sin and to open our eyes and to see the beauty of your son. Thank you that we can celebrate your unfailing love to us this morning at this table. Thank you that we right now as your adopted children who are in union with your son. If we humble ourselves and stay low before you, we can taste and see once again that you are good. Open our eyes and expand our spiritual taste buds to taste and see that you are what we are looking for. In Jesus' name, amen.